0: It's Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Today, the science behind love, marriage, and relationships. Why does someone fall in love with one person rather than another? Are we naturally drawn to some people but not others? Helen Fisher is a biological anthropologist who studies
1: love and relationships. We tend to fall in love with somebody from the same socioeconomic background, the same ethnic background, same general level of intelligence, same general level of good looks, same religious and social values. You know, you can walk into a room and everybody is from your background, same level of intelligence, same level of good looks, and you don't fall in love with all of them.
0: Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from on-stage events hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion is from Spotlight Health. To understand why people choose particular partners, Helen Fisher scanned the brains of people in different stages of love. The result turned up four styles of thought and behavior that help explain the biological underpinnings of romantic love, love addiction, adultery, and divorce. In this episode, she reveals the secret behind keeping a long-term partnership happy, why the later you marry, the more likely you'll stay married, and what a potential partner notices when you first meet. Your teeth, your grammar, and your self-confidence. She explains why these traits are a natural first impression. Here's her conversation with Olga Kazan, a writer for The Atlantic who covers health, gender, and science.
2: How did you come to be researching this? How did you come to be working for Match? and, And how did you get into this? Oh, I wish
1: I had a sexy answer to that, (laughs) and I don't. Um, I'm basically, uh, I'm an identical twin. And when I was um, in college and in graduate school, everybody believed that all behavior was learned, that there's nothing came out of your biology. And I knew perfectly well that that wasn't true. And I began when I was wrote, wrote my PhD dissertation. I thought to myself, if there's any part of of human behavior at all that would have a biological component, it would be our relationships, because it's our relationships, our love, our sex, our feelings of attachment, that bring us together into a pair bond and drive our DNA into tomorrow, having babies. So, bottom line is, um, I, I, I thought that if there was any part at all of human behavior that would have a biological component, it would be something having to do with our reproductive strategy. Not sexy, but that's the truth.
2: And so, did did, did Match.com approach you and say, you know, we'd like to, you, you know, your help in, in in getting people together so that they're actually right for each other?
1: Uh, they, they, it was um, 11 years ago. I'm the longest standing member of Match. I've gone through seven presidents. And, oh. uh, and um, they called me two days before Christmas. I live in New York City. And uh, they wanted me to come in two days after Christmas. Uh, nothing happens in New York City at Christmas. And I said, well, sure, okay. And uh, and I went in uh, to their office, and all these people piled in, and I couldn't figure out who they were. Was this a think tank? Were there other academics, et cetera? And as it turned out, it was the CEO on down. And in the middle of the morning, um, somebody, I think it was the president, um, said to me, he said, Why do you fall in love with one person rather than another? And I said, I don't know. Uh, Nobody knows. Uh, You know, you tend to fall in love with somebody who has your... uh, Well, timing is important. Um, Proximity is important. At my age, lighting would be important. Uh, (laughs) um, uh, We tend to fall in love with somebody from the same socioeconomic background, uh, 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 same ethnic background, same general level of intelligence, same general level of good looks, same religious and social values. Uh, your childhood always plays a role. Um, your goals uh, play a role whether you want to have children or not, etc. But you know, you can walk into a room and everybody is from your background, same level of intelligence, same level of good looks, and you don't fall in love with all of them. So I began to think. When people say, we have chemistry, what do they mean by that? Are we naturally drawn to some people rather than others? And that started me um, uh, in a a study of the biology of personality. So I created a questionnaire uh, that has now been taken by 14 million people. And I've done two brain scanning studies of it. And and we can go into, into that. But that's how it started
2: okay so and about those brain scanning studies so one of the one of my most favorite books of yours is why him why her um, and it's actually a book that really helped me at one point in my life um, and it, it really breaks uh, people down into four basically uh, personality types and so and a lot of it is based on these these brain scans um, so can you describe how you did that how you found those types and and what the types are
1: sure so uh, just backing up for a moment the reason match called me is that I and my colleagues at the first in the world to put people in brain scanners who are madly in love, who have been rejected in love, and who have, are in love long-term. And you can remain in love, not just loving, but in love long-term. But you've got to pick the right person. And this is what Alga uh, is talking about. I wanted to know, people will say we have chemistry. Could nature have been so sloppy as to not pull us naturally towards certain kinds of people? So what I did is, uh, uh, the short version is, I think that we've evolved four very broad styles of thinking and behaving linked with the dopamine, serotonin, testosterone, and estrogen systems in the brain. So there's all kinds of systems in the brain. Uh, Most of them keep the eyes uh, uh, blinking or the heart beating. They're not linked with any personality trait. So the first thing I did is I went through the last, I don't know, 40 years of, of medical literature looking for any trait at all linked with any biological system. Now, we all know that assertiveness is linked with the testosterone system, that verbal skills are linked with the estrogen system, but there's a lot of others. Mm -hmm. So I ended up finding that these four broad styles of thinking and behaving are linked with these constellation of personality traits. And um, so, for example, if you're very high uh, on uh, expressive of the dopamine system in the brain, you tend to be novelty-seeking, risk-taking, curious, creative, spontaneous, energetic, mentally flexible, um, and actually Democrats. Um <laughs> <laughs> And uh, I even know where they live. I know how many orgasms they have. I know everything about Americans. <laughs> <laughs> and um, if you're very, and, and that kind of person, a high dopamine style of thinking, is drawn to people like themselves. Uh, they want somebody who's going to walk into this bar, listen to this speech, then walk to the top of the mountain at night and do whatever. The um, high serotonin type. Style of thing. I don't like types because we're a combination of all of them. Um, uh, a style of thinking and behaving uh, is associated with being traditional, conventional, following the rules, respecting authority. Concrete thinkers rather than theoretical tend to be more religious. Um, love rules, schedules, plans, etc. Republican or not? Republican. Okay. Yes, Republican. <laughs> <laughs> Have less sex, more orgasms, actually too. Oh. Uh, <laughs> uh, they live in the Midwest and in the South. I've got maps, on you know, I, I got 14 million uh, uh, um, zip codes, so I, I know a lot about them. But anyway, the bottom line is they're drawn to people like themselves. A good example would be Mitt Romney and Anne Romney, or Hu Jintao, the uh, former president of uh, China, or. Um, uh, George Washington. I think I, I, I'm hooked now on biographies of of leaders, and I talk a lot actually to understanding leaders. So they're drawn to people like themselves. In those two cases, similarity attracts. In the other two cases, opposites attract. High uh, testosterone style of thinking uh, is naturally drawn to the high estrogen. And vice versa. The high testosterone style is um, analytical, logical, direct, decisive, tough-minded, skeptical, good at what we call rule-based systems. Everything from chemistry, engineering, computers, math. um, uh, And they're drawn to the high estrogen, which is... um, uh, um, intuitive, imaginative, uh, very contextual thinkers, uh, uh, people skills, verbal skills, uh, um, empathetic, uh, intuitive, etc. I think Hillary and Bill Clinton are example. She's the high testosterone. <laughs> <laughs> he is the high estrogen. You know, the whole world knows he can't stop talking. Uh, you know, his autobiography is a uh, nine hundred and something pages. You know, he feels everybody's pain. Uh, as a matter of fact, you know, we're all all been wondering when we're going to have our first female president. I think we've had our first female president <laughs> with Bill Clinton. I think Lincoln was, I think, a very high estrogen man. Also, we're all a combination of all of them. So the issue is to what degree. Uh, and it's the combination of them, and this is why my personality questionnaire is so different from any other one on the market today, because they all put you in a bucket, and the brain doesn't work in buckets. It works in systems that are all in combinations, and it's very valuable to know not only what you are, but what you're not.
2: So talk about the, like, for, for example, a, a serotonin gap is something that you mentioned yeah. that comes up if you're in the, like, you have a mismatch of, of styles. Yeah.
1: It's so interesting because we had this conversation. I'm just starting to go out with the guy. And he's very high. Uh, he's a journalist, well-known journalist, actually. And, and um, he um, is very high on the dopamine, as I am. So that works fine. And uh, he's very high on testosterone, and I'm high on estrogen, and that's also works fine. But he's much higher on the serotonin scale, scale, and here's an example. We were going to the movies, I don't know, a couple months ago, and I said to him, do you have any water? And he said, yeah, I got some water in my pack, and I said, oh, great, we can drink the water in the movie. He said, oh, no, we can't. You can't bring food and drink into a movie. You've got to buy it at the, at the snack bar.
2: And that's serotonin? And I,
1: walked, I said, whoa. And he said, Helen, it's a serotonin gap. Hmm. And so what I want to start doing is our psychologists are generally, we go back to our childhood over and over and over. Some things really don't have to do with your childhood. They have to do with who you are. And if you begin to understand that a person really is a certain way... Um, uh, uh, you can reach them where you live I don't even believe in the golden rule uh, To do unto others as you would have done unto yourself I believe in the platinum rule Do unto others as they Want to have done unto themselves mm-hmm. And you can win You've got to learn who somebody is And then work within their system And you can reach anyone
2: so you also, I mean, that that kind of applies to the business world also, and you mentioned that you're right. doing some business consulting now. Tell us a little bit about how that applies to different styles of leaders. I mean, you mentioned a few already, but...
1: Yeah. Um, I'll tell a story about uh, Deloitte. Okay. Uh, Deloitte uses my uh, paradigm, and they've trained uh, 190,000 people with it, and... Um, I was being introduced one night. I had to make a speech to a whole pile of them, uh, uh, about 1,400 of them in Las Vegas. And um, he told the story, and I just was sitting behind the curtain listening. Was, he told the story that um, he had heard me speak, and he knew this new way of thinking about personality. And he was spent all evening, the following morning, he was going to make a big pitch to a major international bank. And uh, he had put the whole deck, the whole PowerPoint together. Everybody was on their way to bed. And he suddenly remembered something that I had said. And he suddenly realized that he was p- make, doing the wrong kind of pitch. He realized who these people were. And I, th- I think that um, he was giving the huge theory first, which the high dopamine type would really like. But he realized he was talking to some high serotonin people who like the details, they like the details, they like everything, they, you know, skip the big idea, the details. So he called them all back and redid the entire PowerPoint. And then he said to the audience, and the following morning I made a million dollars. <laughs> so bottom line is, you know, if you can figure out who people are, and that I train them to, to look at LinkedIn, to, to look at their emails, uh, to look what they do in their spare time. Uh, and you can begin to get a feel for the basic biology of somebody. And then I did a study of 178,000 um, uh, people um, to find out what words these people use. And so I say to various people in business, don't listen to just the content of the conversation, but listen to the words that they use as they are expressing that content. And you can begin to understand, once you want to know it, uh, who, who somebody is. And then, um, you know, you can begin to... If you know the brain, you can reach anyone.
0: Thanks for listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. On the show today, love, sex, and the brain. Our featured speaker, Helen Fisher, is the chief scientific advisor for Match.com. Fisher was featured in another episode of Aspen Ideas To Go about how our devices are affecting our
1: relationships. Sex drive, romantic love, and attachment are drives. They come from the most ancient parts of the brain, and they are not going to change whether you sweep left or right on Tinder. They're not going to change whether you meet the guy next door or you meet him on Match.com. Find a
0: link to the episode, What is Technology's Toll on Intimacy?, in our show notes. And listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, NPR One, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Back to our featured conversation. Here's Olga Kazan.
2: Well, I want to uh, pivot just a little bit to talk about slow love and oh, this, yeah. this kind of concept that, you know, people having one-night stands, even, you know, friends with benefits, it's not necessarily a dead end. Um, can you kind of explain how you, how you found that and why that is? Yeah.
1: Thank you, Olga. This is my favorite thing. <laughs> um, um, I call it slow love. Um, I do an annual study with Match uh, called Singles in America. We do not poll the Match population. Uh, We poll the American population. So it's a representative sample of Americans based on the U.S. census. And uh, every year we do it. We're in our eighth year now. It'll start in August. Ruins Christmas for me. Destroys it. Um, but anyway, every single year we ask some questions that are trend questions. We want to see if times have changed. And every year we ask some new questions. Among the 10 twen- uh, trend questions that we ask are, um, I'm leading up to telling you that the future is good, so th- that's the <laughs> bottom line. Um, the, um, every year I ask the question, um, have you ever had a one-night stand? And over 50% of American singles have. Now, not necessarily last year, but over the course of their... Experiences. Over 50% of Americans have had a friends with benefits, and over 50% of, of Americans have had a long term live in relationship before they marry. Americans think this is reckless. Mm-hmm. And then I read an article that 67% of people who are living together long term are terrified of divorce. We are terrified of divorce. And it began to occur to me that this is not recklessness, this is caution that today we want to get to know every single thing about a person before we tie the knot. Mm -hmm. Where marriage used to be the beginning of a relationship, now it's the finale. And I thought to myself, if there's this long, what I call the pre-commitment stage, or what I call commitment light, L-I-T-E, commitment light, Mm -hmm. during which you get to know every single thing about somebody, you can get rid of the bad relationships before you marry. So wouldn't that mean, then, that by the time you walk down that aisle, you know who you got, you know you want who you got, and you think you can keep who you got? And so maybe we're going to see in America, and I think in the world, um, uh, better marriages because of this long pre-commitment stage. So I did a study of 1,100 married people, and I asked a lot of questions. But one of the questions was, would you remarry? The person you're currently married to. And 81% said yes. So I've also looked at divorce in 80 cultures through the demographic yearbooks of the United Nations, going back to 1947. And these are two data points. One being the fact that everywhere in the world, uh, where it's not arranged marriages, um, the later you marry, the more likely you are to remain married. And so here we have a second data point, this long pre-commitment stage before you tie the knot. I think these are two huge worldwide demographic change uh, trends that are enabling people to make finer decisions when the time comes, marrying later and marrying the right person. But you gotta pick the right person. That is for sure.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Very important. Um, so a- another kind of really interesting trend that is a little bit ca- counterintuitive is is the age stuff. So so older people actually have maybe more active sex lives than we might imagine, yeah. and millennials not so much. Uh, yeah. Tell us uh, what you found in, in that in that space and and why you think that is. So uh, millennials
1: um, <laughs> it, with Match. Um, you know we we did we did, a, we did a, a big study on millennials this year it 's only been out a few months and uh, they have the least sex of any generation by far the least sex and um, uh, but when they do have sex a thirty four percent of singles have had sex with somebody before the first date, and millennials are the ninety Percent more likely than other generations to have sex before the first. So if, they, if they're going to have sex at all, they're going to have it fast. And so what I, I call it fast sex, slow love, right? Okay. How come? So anybody in the room's guess would be as good as mine, but here's mine. Um, I think from looking at a lot of millennials, um, I think they're very ambitious. I think they're very busy, um they are uh, they have very little time they the vast majority of them want to really get somewhere in this world, and they are really putting career first and I think what they 're doing when they have sex before the first date I call it the sex interview. you know you learn a lot between the sheets, you know and in this day and age they 're not scared of pregnancy; they can know how to handle that. They're not scared of disease. They know how to handle that. They don't have to walk the walk of shame. And that, that those days are over. And before they expend a lot of metabolic energy going out with somebody for a period of time, they want to know what they can about the guy or girl. So um, I, I think, and there's another thing too. You know, we have evolved three distinctly different brain systems for mating and reproduction, sex drive, feelings of intense romantic love and feelings of deep attachment. I study in the brain those three brain systems. And as it turns out, when you go to bed with somebody, um, any stimulation of the genitals drives up the dopamine system in the brain and can push you over the threshold into falling in love. And with orgasm, there's a real flood of oxytocin and vasopressin linked with feelings of attachment. So casual sex is not casual unless you're so drunk you can't remember it. It's not casual. (laughs) Things happen in the brain. So these millennials are doing one of two things. They're either having the sex interview, to decide whether they want to go out with this person at all, or they're trying to um, trigger that brain system instantly and have the person fall in love with them fast.
2: And, and what's going on with, with older people, middle-aged or, or elderly people?
1: It's so interesting. Um, we really don't understand, uh, old, and we don't understand men either. Uh, men, uh, men, men fall in love faster than women. They fall in love more often than women. Uh, all of the academic literature knows this, but for some, I have talked to the women's magazines for 40 years. They are dedicated to thinking that women are the, are the uh, romantic ones. I knew that about men. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah good. Yeah, yeah. A journalist. Light it up. Um, um, men fall in love faster. They fall in love more often when they meet a person that they... Um, uh, uh, are in love with, they want to introduce them to friends and family sooner, they want to move in sooner. Men have more intimate conversations with their wives than women do with their husbands, because we have our indif- intimate conversations with our girlfriends. Mm-hmm. And men are two and a half times more likely to kill themselves when a relationship is over. But anyway, older people, seniors, yeah. I know, it's something that I didn't mean to gloss over that one. Um, I am older. So at Match, I'm always looking for the data on older people. And one of my favorite questions, two of my favorite questions that really says something about older people, one of the questions is, would you make a long-term commitment to somebody who had every single thing you were looking for in a partner, but you were not in love with them? And the other question was, would you make a long-term commitment to somebody who had every single thing you were looking for in a partner, but you did not find them sexually attractive? And the most likely to say no, they would not do it without sex and love, are people over 60.
2: Really? Yes. Oh. We're, we're,
1: we're having a good time. <laughs> <laughs> and, I mean, I, I live in New York City. Would I move to... Well, I don't want to insult anybody, but what I move to... China, to be with somebody who had everything that I wanted if I wasn't sexually attracted to them? I don't think so. Hmm. And, and, you know, older people, we, we have our networks, we have our friends, we have family, etc., etc. et, cetera, et cetera. It's the young. And the m- most likely to make a compromise are young men. Hmm. Um, because when a young man finds a girl who, um, you know, um, can bear him healthy babies can help him in in his career who is loved by family and friends he might not be madly in love with her but there's something in the human brain to pick the kind of partner when you're young who can help you pass your dna on into tomorrow Mm -hmm. so it's the young who are going to make the compromises not older people
2: oh that's interesting so uh how do we judge part potential partners how do we evaluate potential partners when we first meet them
1: So this is another thing that I did with Match. We asked them one year, what uh, are the first three things that you judge somebody by? Mm -hmm. And we gave them a laundry list of 25 things you could check off. The first three things that American singles, and I would say human people, uh, singles uh, judge by, is your teeth, your grammar, and your self-confidence. And my friends at Mass said, what's this going on? And I said, well, actually, it makes Darwinian sense. Your teeth say a great deal about your age and your health. Your grammar says a great deal about your background and your education. And your self-confidence tells a great deal about your psychological stability. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? It's all these things, you know. It's just... We're wiser than we think, you know? So when people are like, you have
2: really nice eyes, that's meaningless. Yeah, <laughs>
1: there's all kinds of good pickup lines, you know? Um, and they probably think you have bad, good eyes, but you're taking a look at your teeth. Yeah. Okay, okay. <laughs> I like that smile. Yeah. Um, it depends whether it's a short term or long term partnership, too, but I mean, if you've got terrible teeth, most people don't want you.
2: Okay. Yeah. <laughs> harsh. We spend
1: a lot on our dentists, obviously, for that's good true. reason.
2: Yeah. Um, well, so what are this is another listicle one? What are the secrets of a happy relationship of keeping a relationship happy?
1: Oh, that's so great! We really stumbled on this. Psychologists will tell you all kinds of things about a happy partnership. They're probably all correct. Don't show contempt. Uh, listen carefully. Uh, don't blame. Uh, uh, don't threaten divorce. There's all kinds of psychological things. All good. This is what the brain says. This is what the brain says about long-term partnerships. It comes from our various studies. We put people in the brain scanner who were married an average of 21 years. They kept on coming into the lab saying, I'm still in love with her. Not loving, but in love. So we finally put them in the machine. And we ended up finding that, and also we did it in China, long-term relationships. And we found three brain regions that become active in people in a long-term, very happy partnership. A brain region linked with empathy, a brain region linked with controlling your own stress and your own emotions, and a brain region linked with what I call positive illusions, Hmm. the ability to overlook what you don't like about them and focus on what you do.
2: Any tips for doing that? Yeah, what? Any tips for doing that? Well, I'll tell
1: you with me. um, I went out for 18 years with a guy. And we broke up about three years ago. Oh, he was so slow. Oh, my God. I I, I would walk like this. and He was always behind me. Uh, uh, He talked slowly. He thought slowly. He, He talked with his eyes shut. It was just unbelievable. But when we went to the Metropolitan Museum... He looked so carefully at a picture, and then we'd go out to dinner, and he would talk about the meaning of the picture. He read me over a hundred books. We've gone to uh, hundreds of plays and operas and ballets and this and that, and he, talk, he reads all about it beforehand. When we would get into bed at night, he read me almost all of Shakespeare. A man who is slow can do that, and I would say to myself, okay, Helen, he's walking behind you again but he's read you all of Shakespeare. <laughs> so find the good parts and really go there, live there.
2: Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> any other... Oh, you mentioned, I think... Yes. Yeah, mas- massages, right? Or.
1: Um, yes. Um, you also want to keep all three of these brain systems alive. Sex drive, romantic love, and feelings of deep attachment. Um, to... to Sustained feelings of romantic love do novel things together. Novelty, novelty, novelty drives up the dopamine system in the brain and can give you feelings of romantic love. And I don't mean swinging from chandeliers. I mean, you know, take your bicycle to a different park. Uh, You know, go to a different uh, uh, restaurant on Friday night. Don't always go to the same summer place. Novelty. This is why uh, vacations are romantic, Because it's so different that it's driving up the dopamine system and can help push you over that threshold into feeling romantic love. In order to sustain feelings of deep attachment to a partner, stay in touch. Any kind of nice touch drives up the oxytocin system in the brain and can give you feelings of attachment. So walk arm in arm. Hold hands. I was watching the people at the conference, and some people were doing that. Um... um, at dinner, put your foot carefully on, on top of his foot. Stay in touch. Get rid of the two big armchairs that you watch television in, and get a couch so you're sitting next to each other. Um, learn to at least start the evening sleeping in the other person's arms. All of and kiss them for God's sake. That drives up the oxytocin system in the brain. And uh, to sustain the sex system, have sex. Just have sex schedule it we schedule every other thing in our lives schedule the sex and and have sex they're all very good for the body very good for the mind and people who are in positive relationships live longer healthier lives
2: so you you also write about love as a, as a type of addiction yeah. um and and obviously not a, a necessarily a damaging one but yeah. can you kind of elaborate on that a little bit
1: um, this is something that 's very special to me because <clears throat> we this is a health conference, and I thought to myself, "Gee, why is not anybody talking about romantic love and attachment because um, I you know the number of people who murder somebody, uh, kill themselves, uh, slip into clinical depression, uh, stalk people, uh, go into hibernation almost. These are, one of the, these are the most pow- among the most powerful brain systems The human animal has ever evolved The basic brain region for romantic love Lies not in the cortex Not in the limbic system linked with the emotions But in the base of the brain In fact, that factory that generates the dopamine Associated with romantic love Lies right next to the brain regions for thirst and hunger Technology is changing how we court It will never change The brain circuitry for romantic love It's essential that I think For good health That we begin to understand What this brain system is And I give a lot of speeches To the addiction community And my hypothesis is These are natural addictions These evolved millions of years ago in order to, the sex drive evolved to get you out there looking for a whole range of partners romantic love evolved to enable you to focus your energy on just one at a time yeah. and attachment evolved to enable you to stick with this, tolerate this person really uh, long enough uh, to raise a child together as a team so the bottom line is unlike all of the other addictions that are negative I think that romantic love and attachment can also be very positive addictions. If you got the right person, it's the right time under the right circumstances. And I'd really like to change our understanding of addiction. My hypothesis is that all of our modern addictions are hijacking these ancient systems. We don't even know things like whether alcoholism um, uh, sensitizes you so you fall in love more often or less often. I do know this, though, and we were talking about this before... I mean, I don't know. It's a hypothesis. But um, it's my hypothesis that these um, uh, Lexapro, Prozac, uh, uh, Celexa, uh, uh, all of them, um, they drive up the serotonin system. And you look in any medical book, you'll find that as you drive up the serotonin system, you are driving down the dopamine system. It's the dopamine system that is linked with feelings of romantic love. And I get a letter from... Now, some people need to take these drugs. They need to take them to get out of bed. I'm not suggesting that. But a well-known psychologist, a psychiatrist from Harvard once said that about 80, uh, 73% of, of Americans are on these drugs um, um, when they don't need to be. Mm-hmm. They blunt the emotions. Uh, they can kill the sex drive in almost three-quarters of the people. When you have sex with somebody, you're driving up dopamine, helping love... Uh, and um what is a world without love and these drugs are just ubiquitous now Hmm. one third of adult americans take some type of antidepressant the vast majority of them are serotonin boosters i'm not surprised that they can't find a date
0: It's Aspen Ideas To Go. Did you know SiriusXM's Insight channel carries our show? Listen to Aspen Ideas To Go on Saturday, Monday, and Tuesday on channel 121. Find a schedule at SiriusXM.com insight. Here's the rest of today's show. Olga Kazan.
2: Well, so I I wanted to circle back. So something you you say often is focusing on one person at a time. And something I've written about a little bit and and looked into is polyamory, uh, which is sort of a newer trend um, and I think maybe more popular, although you would know, but maybe more popular among millennials. Um, But you kind of voiced some skepticism about that. Can you talk a little bit about polyamory? Yeah. I'm
1: going to start out with a story. I was traveling in the highlands of New Guinea and I was in the back of a really beat up van with my friend. And um, there were three men there. And um, one of them spoke English and he had three wives. So I said to him, I said, how many wives would you like to have? And there was this long pause and I thought to myself, is he going to say five? Is he going to say 10? Is he going to say 25? And he leaned over to me and he said, none. (laughs) The bottom line is we are a pair bonding animal. This is what I write in all of my books. We are an animal, 97% of mammals do not pair up to rear their young. People do. If chimpanzees were writing about people, they would say it was one of the most flipped out things that this animal does, is form pair bonds. And we do. We are also adulterous. We've got a what I would call a dual human reproductive strategy, but we form pair bonds. We are built to form pair bonds. A series of pair bonds often, marriage, divorce, marriage, divorce, but we are built to form pair bonds. Polyamory, poly means many, amory means love. It's an old term, actually. And long ago, it was middle aged uh, married people who wanted to stay in their marriage deeply loved each other, but wanted the thrill, the zing of romance. So they decided that what they would do is be completely transparent and they would both go out and find lovers. Not just sex partners, but romantic partners. Yeah. And so that's in the old days. Now the young have borrowed this term or moved this term forward of, uh, to polyamory. And, and in New York, um, what they will do is they will have two or three sort of deep partnerships with two or three people. Triads. Yeah, try it. Is that what they're called? Yeah, that's what they're yeah, well, thank you. And uh, you must tell me more. And, um, and then they will have their other relationships on the side. But they're completely transparent. And I admire that. I mean, um, and they've always liked my work because they think about these three different brain systems, sex drive, romantic love, feelings of attachment, and they know that, you know, there are all these three different styles and that um, they want some from one person and some from another. I admire their transparency. It's not going to work for most of them because we are a jealous animal. We do not share well. And um, I think a lot of them are in their 20s. They don't want to settle down. At some point, romantic love will hit. Romantic love is a brain system like a sleeping cat. It can be awakened at any moment. And as soon as it is, you can get very jealous. And what they don't tell you, and I'm sure you know this, is that you know they might have all of their romances and et cetera, et cetera, but then they talk about it endlessly. You know, they're endlessly talking about their feelings and and this and that. That's why I think that um, um, we evolved clandestine adultery rather than, uh, you know, open, transparent adultery. Um, So my guess is... I did a study of polyamory this year with Match.com, and we asked a lot of questions about it. 68% of, of singles are... Um, perfectly comfortable with the concept but only 6% have ever done it Or yeah, so it's, it's not natural to the human animal um, I've looked at adultery in 42 cultures you find it everywhere even where you can get your head chopped off for it um, but um, it's clandestine around the world because we're a jealous animal so well, polyamory will be a, they'll always be polyamorous people uh, and uh, but not a lot of them
2: so can can anyone find out which style is sort of uh, most prominent with them, or do they have to sign up for Match.com? How does that How does that work? Yeah, you
1: definitely do not have to sign up for Match.com. Okay. <laughs> uh,
2: um, so, well, uh, my most recent book,
1: um, it, it's um, the questionnaire is in chapter two or three. Mm-hmm. Um, you can also get it on the internet. Uh, several places. You can get it on my website, um, theanatomyoflove.com. And you can just take it there and get a very short response. Um, in my book, uh, Why Him, Why Her, that you read, mm-hmm. um, there's not only the questionnaire, but um, um, uh, uh, some good explanations of the styles of thinking and behaving. But I need. But since writing that book, um, I, I've moved farther into understanding. How these personality styles break down into more more complex. I've never met two people who were alike. Hmm. Um, I'm an identical twin, as I mentioned. I, she, no two people are alike, but there are patterns to nature. There's patterns to culture, and there's patterns to personality. And you will be able to get from uh, my website, theanatomyoflove.com, or it's all over the internet. You can just take it.
2: Are you and your twin the same style? Yes, Uh, she's a, actually, she lived in Aspen
1: for, um, 30 years. Her daughter still lives here. Her granddaughter lives here. And she was a hutter balloon pilot. Oh. And, and, and a painter. So, and I'm an anthropologist. Don't, they don't, doesn't sound like much (laughs) similarity there. But, you know, she takes people up over those mountains right above you you in a basket that comes up to your waist. And I walk on onto podiums and talk about the evolution of um, adultery. So we can both tolerate risk.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: And um, uh, so you know, life has taken us to uh, uh, different um, ways of making a living, but the, the temperament is the same. Now, for example, somebody like um, oh um, Richard Branson, mm-hmm. you know, uh, a wonderful uh, businessman, and Gloria Steinem. Uh, a very different kind of person. Uh, And Lang Lang, the uh, concert pianist from China. Very different people, different parts of the world, uh, different contributions to the world, but the same basic temperament. Hmm. And that's what I'm studying. And a good 40 to 60% of who you are is your biology. One thing that's interesting, um, you know, I studied the genetics of all this, and um, there's a gene in the serotonin system that's linked with social norm conformity, guess, somebody in the room, guess where that particular gene is most prevalent in the world. Shout it out. Japan and China. Hmm. Yeah. Isn't that it? And so I'm beginning to see migration patterns. Now, for example, in Japan, they say, you know, the nail that sticks out gets hammered down. So who are those people who, they're the, they're the explorer type, the yeah. dopamine type. Where do they do? It? They come to America. You know, so you can begin to see. In fact, I even brought it with me uh, to this conference, but I don't have it with me now. Uh, because Match is in, was in 40 countries. I have people in 40 countries have taken my questionnaire. And I even know which country um,
2: has which personality style. Hmm. Well. Wow. So on which date do you make your boyfriend take the quiz so you can find out if you're... As soon as possible, I would say. (laughs) And how do you do that conversation? Like, hey, I just this questionnaire it's going to help us determine if you th- do you- so you you had your your partner do it right
1: you- i did okay
2: yeah <laughs> <laughs> and did he did he respond well to that uh, he did okay but
1: he's he's a nice guy okay. um but uh, different people take the questionnaire different i can even watch the way you take it now i mean the high um uh the high estrogen i'm very i'm very high dopamine and very high estrogen And high estrogen can think of a million ways to answer a question, just a million ways. So I'll answer my questions like, well, it could be this, it could be this, it could be this. I already know they're high estrogen, just the way they took the questionnaire. Mm. High testosterone doesn't want to take the questionnaire because they don't (laughs) want to be known. They don't want to be, uh, yeah, they're they're much more cautious about um, revealing who they are. Mm. But anyway, um, the other thing is if you don't want to ask the person... um, You could learn enough about the questions, about the personality style, so that you can pick it up. Mm -hmm. Now, for example, um, a woman, I'll ask a woman if she's good at math, um, if she likes all of the little gadgets on her camera, (laughs) uh, whether she, uh, et cetera, et cetera. You can begin to ask people questions. And you can also watch the way they talk to you. And once you begin to understand these styles, you can begin to, to get, it, get it. But I'm always a little careful about it myself, though, because, you know, um, uh, you don't want to peg somebody either. The other thing is, you know, you can, we can change. Within a parameter, mm-hmm. um, you can act out a character. It's just tiring. hmm and of course, when you are courting, you can act out a character. You know, courtship is not about honesty. Courtship is about winning. <laughs> <laughs> and you can really see where people are. I've got a wonderful girlfriend who, who uh, uh, um, was, you know, in her courting days with her, her man. You know, he loved to fish, and she loved the opera. So she went fishing with him for months, and he went to the opera with her for months. And then they finally got married, and she finally said, "You know, I hate a fish," and he said, "Well, you know, I hate the opera," <laughs> and you know, but they could laugh about it. So, um, courtship. Uh, one thing I just want to say—I don't know if I'll end up getting into it. I'm thinking of it now. Um, you know, Match.com and all these—they're not dating sites. These are not dating sites. They are introducing sites. The only real algorithm is your own brain. You have got to get out there and meet the person. We can give you somebody with the right background, the right education, the right ethnic thing within five miles of where you live, the right age, etc., but you have got to meet that person. That's the biggest problem on the internet today. And the president of Match, they all know this. We, you know, the more, the longer you stay on these sites, the more likely you are to not meet anybody. And the other thing is, it's called cognitive overload people go out person after person after person, and the brain is not built. There's a sweet spot between five and nine people. And after that, the more people you meet, the less likely you are to fall for any of them. So the two things that I would say if you are in the dating world is, number one, when you meet, get out and meet the person right off the bat. Second, Give them a chance. People are so nervous in the beginning. Give them a chance. Think of reasons to say yes. Overlook the negative. Positive illusions. Get to know them a second time and a third time. And after you've met nine people, stop and get to know at least one of them better if you really want love.
2: All right. Um, Well, I'm I'm sure you guys will probably have some questions. So we're going to take some audience questions.
1: So you talked about uh, all the traits that men have and how they're different than what we would expect. What's going to happen when college campuses today, not when, but college campuses today are 51% female? How is this going to play out? It's very interesting. Um, You know, college is really built for women. Women, I, I wrote a whole book called The First Sex, The Natural Talents of Women and How They're Changing the World. Feminists hated the book because they don't want to believe that there's biological differences in the brain. Um, um, uh, I study the brain and I study human evolution. Women bring a huge amount to the job market that is really important. Uh, men and women are like two feet. They need each other to get ahead, but they are not alike. And college is really built for women Because women tend to be more patient. They're more verbally skilled. Um, uh, 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 They're better at sitting. They're better at listening. They're better at talking. And so, so much of our college is really built for women. I'm not surprised that there are more. What we're really moving towards is the double-income family. I'm really excited about that. You know, people are all so interested in... um, uh, in the past, um, a woman needed to marry up. Um, for the last 10,000 years, a woman's only career choice was to marry well. She needed a man uh, who could do the providing while she was in the home. For millions of years before that, um, in hunting and gathering societies, I studied them. Uh, women commuted to work to gather their fruits and vegetables. They came home with 60 to 80 percent of the evening meal. The double-income family was the rule, and for millions of years, uh, women were were regarded as just as sexual and social and economically powerful as men, the double-income family. As we have moved away from the agrarian life, we are in the middle of a marriage revolution. We are right now um, moving away from ten thousand years of the agrarian tradition, where a woman was, where the man was the head of the household, till death do us part. You can't move. You can't take half. You can't cut the cow in half. Uh, you can't move half the wheat field out of town. So when we began to settle down on the farm, women lost their ancient roles as fully economically powerful partners. And we, came, we began to evolve a lot of new ideas. Um, uh, virginity at marriage, arranged marriage, a woman's place is in a home, man is the sole provider, uh, honor thy husband till death do us part, And then with the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, we are shedding all of those traditions. It's the most powerful social trend in the world today is women piling into the job market, much more powerful than the technological revolution in terms of marriage and the family. And what we're seeing now is double-income families. And it's something like between one-third, almost a third of American families where um, both the man and the woman work, the woman makes more money than the man. And women are getting more education. And so women's roles are changing, and men's roles are changing too. Men's roles are expanding. They're spending much more time in the home. They're spending more time helping to raise the children. And we're seeing a different kind of marriage. But they will keep marrying. We're built for that. Oh,
3: not to bring this crowd down, but what do you think of President Trump's brain?
1: (laughs) I just did a thing for the New York Times. i would never heard the question, what do I think of Trump's brain? Well, I mean, I'm like everybody else. I think he's a narcissistic megalomaniac. He's a nutcase. He's, you know, he's a nutcase. Uh, um, and I apologize to those who uh, uh, don't agree with me, but you ask me my opinion, That's my opinion. He's also very high testosterone. He's very high testosterone man. He's a builder, you know, uh, I mean, literally a builder of buildings. He's got to have very good spatial, uh, skills for that. Um, he, he does have some estrogen in him. He, he has a, uh, he has a very, um, uh, 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 he's, he can be believable to people. He's very much like Putin. That's why they understand each other. They're both very high testosterone, uh, men. Uh, very impulsive. That impulsivity is the dopamine system. So if I had to peg him... Odd that he's running as a Republican, though, because uh, that's serotonin. Uh, that's the concrete, the traditional... the. Con- I don't actually think he is a Republican, personally. Um, I don't think he's anything. I don't even think he's a political guy. And he's a guy who wants power. He's a, he's a, he's a power guy. And I think if if, if, he, if I put him in my scanner... And I had him take my questionnaires. He'd he'd be off the charts in the testosterone system, and the uh, and the dopamine system. And this is why he and Putin understand each other. They're both high testosterone. Putin didn't understand um, uh, um, uh, Obama. Uh, Obama's much higher estrogen. He's a lot like Lincoln, actually. He wanted to negotiate it. He wanted consensus. It took him a long time to decide what he was going to do. Um, he wanted to involve everybody in it. He had a great, you know, he could have gone to a white shoe law firm and instead he's trying to help people in the poorest parts of Detroit and, uh, uh, you know, other parts of Illinois, et cetera. Um, and, uh, uh, and, entirely de- and this is why I think Putin didn't understand Obama. Putin thought Obama was weak. He's not weak. He just leads differently.
3: So you made the point about um, the benefit of uh, delaying marriage yes. for longevity of the relationship. Yes. You also, uh, the previous question asked about you know, women and the changing, and you answered about the changing roles of women in terms of income and moving from an agrarian society. Yes. So if you combine the two and you look at it like, okay, people are going to pair up, older woman versus younger man, uh, equal age, older man versus younger woman, what's, what, what do you see evolving and what's the best pairing?
1: Oh, that's so wonderful. Um, I started in on this, and then I wandered off it. Um, um, A couple weeks ago, when Macron uh, in France won the election, and he's married to a woman who's 24 years older, and Trump is married to a woman who is 24 years younger. And um, so they quoted me in the Times. They did not put this quote in, which I I would have hoped that they would, which was, um, Macron's marriage is the marriage of the future, and Trump's marriage is the marriage of the past. More, and when I study people in this Singles in America study, 40% of men um, would be willing to marry a woman who was 10 or more years older than them. Um, uh, uh, over 60 to 70% of men would marry a woman who had more education, who made, no, who had considerably more education, who had considerably. Um, who was considerably more intellectual and who made considerably more money. So this is going to change. They once... I mean, we come from an agrarian society where the man was the power and women needed that power. But in hunting and gathering societies, for example, a friend of mine asked a man, would you marry a woman who was smarter than you? And he said, of course I would. She'd make me smart too. And we're going to see more and more, this is the thing about the educational thing, we're going to see more and more women who are down on Wall Street making the money while the man is making very much less money, but he's a psychiatrist. He's got prestige, or he's a violinist at the, at the Philharmonic, but uh, he doesn't have the money. And, and I've asked, I make a lot of speeches to uh, uh, executive women. And I, I'm always interested in how they've managed this, because we're just in this marriage revolution. We still don't know how to handle a relationship in which the woman's making all the money. And um, and they, they all often say exactly the same thing to me. They say, Helen, I knew he was always going to be a primary school teacher. I admired him for that. I make the money, and that's and so they, 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 they know this before they go into it and they somehow work it out and we're going to see more and more of that as women become more economically powerful so
3: as a follow up if you were going to advise my three daughters over the <laughs> next 12 years about feeling pressured to get married at a younger age what would you tell them
1: well I, I, I don't think it's um, uh, uh, the highest divorce rate is in people um, in their very early 20s The highest divorce rate is also in the entire Bible Belt. And the highest divorce rate is in the Bible Belt, not because these people are religious, but because uh, religious people feel that they should have sex after marriage. And and so they marry very young in order to have their sex and their partnerships. And so they don't know themselves, they don't know uh, their partner, and uh, they don't know how to handle problems yet. And so... Um, all the data shown that the longer you wait to marry uh, and the more time you spend with the partner before you wed, uh, the more likely you are to uh, be able to sustain that marriage long-term.
3: If if a young person came to you and asked you to help them know whether they're in love, how would you answer that question? And um, if they're not sure... Would you do you think that giving them maybe L-dopam might push them over the edge?
1: <laughs> I wouldn't give them L-dopam um, or even cocaine. That'll drive it up, but not for long. You know, the following morning, you wake up, you're not high anymore on the cocaine, so I'm told, right? Uh, and uh, <laughs> uh, so, uh, um, okay. Uh, people have come to me and, and, and asked me that. And the first thing I do is I ask them about the relationship and all of that uh, but I also will list the characteristics of, of romantic love and see if they have them. And by the way, um, when I ask, uh, uh, a lot of, uh, over 50% of people uh, believe in love at first sight and over 35% have experienced it. So it's not impossible. And It's actually rather easy to explain love at first sight. But a lot of people don't have it. And, um, but anyway, here are the basic characteristics of intense romantic passionate love not the sex drive not attachment first thing that happens is a person takes on what i call special meaning everything about that person becomes special their car is different from every other car in the parking lot the street they live on is different the music that they, everything is different then you focus on them you know and i would ask people before i put them in the brain scanner what do you not like about your partner and they can list it but then they sweep that aside and just focus, focus on what they really do like. As Chaucer said, love is blind. And then uh, intense elation when things are going well. Mood swings into terrible despair when you don't get an email, you don't get a call, you don't get a text. They don't. They go, they disappear on you for the weekend, et cetera. Um, uh, intense energy, you can walk all night and talk till dawn. Uh, butterflies in the stomach, weak knees, uh, dry mouth, uh, things... Um, uh, 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 dependency, um, separation anxiety, you don't like to be apart. frustration attraction, when they don't call, don't write, you like them more, because actually what's happened is you've driven up the dopamine system. Um, but the three main characteristics are uh, somebody's camping in your head. You think about them all the time. Uh, uh, and yes you do want to have sex with them but the second characteristic what you really want is for uh, emotional union for them to call to write, to ask you out to tell you that they love you And, and last, you're highly motivated to win them just like any other drug what people will do when they are in love is out of this world but basically from a Darwinian perspective you're fighting to win life's greatest prize which is a mating partner Last but not least, romantic love is very uh, hard to control. As Stendhal once said, he said, Love is like a fever. It comes and goes quite independently of the will. So if you're not in love, keep on, ride roller coasters with him, for God's sakes, take a vacation to different places, jack up that dopamine system, make love to him, for Christ's sakes, you know, and get to know him. And eventually, uh, it may happen we're built for it (laughs) so why don't I close with this so we're all interested in the future and I'll just say this one line Uh, it's the last line of my book Um, you know any determinant of the future needs to uh, take into account the unquenchable adaptable and primordial human drive to love thank you
2: Thank you, guys.
0: Helen Fisher has studied love and relationships for four decades. She's a senior research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and has written several books, including Anatomy of Love, A Natural History of Mating, Marriage, and Why We Stray. Olga Kazan is a staff writer for The Atlantic. She covers health, gender, and science. Their conversation was held at Spotlight Health in June of 2017. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenen and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining
1: me.